I lead Radiant Church in uh, Visalia, California, which is right in the middle of the state. And we're coming up on 17 years as a church. So our 17th anniversary uh, is in May. And I've been living in a question. Um, and and I, th- I would imagine it's a question that most people living in Chicago live in. And the question I've been living in is how do I sustain Radiant Church for another 17 years? I know how to start something, but I've been learning how to sustain something. And I know how people come to Chicago, and I know why they come to Chicago, but the question is how do you stay in Chicago? How do you sustain life in Chicago? And that's a question that most of us are living in. I, 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 I knew how to pull off a, a wedding, but I'm, I'm like working on a marriage, yeah? And, and, and we can all agree, how, how many of you actually um, believe in or, or would use the beginning of the year as an opportunity to set some goals, like you make New Year's resolutions. How many of you are there? Like, not just plan, I think we all kind of plan into the new year, but how many of you would say, this is a moment for me to set some goals? How many of you gave up on that like a long uh, time ago? (laughs) Like you just quit that, you're like, I don't need another thing to feel guilty about, you know? That's That's not helpful. I think, whether, whether you're into New Year's, you're pro-New Year's resolution, or, or whether you're anti-New Year's resolution, I think we can all agree that it's much easier to start something than it is to sustain something. And I think because we know that, many of us don't even bother to start something because we know we're probably not going to be able to sustain that something. So I'm not even going to bother with that diet that's going to go out the window just going to keep trucking. So I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm, uh, again, learning to sustain uh, life uh, in my church. And so I want to talk to you about sustaining your yes. And I want to talk about essentially how to be a church for another 14 years. How do we do this for another uh, 14 years? And if you've got a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 20. If you don't, I think the text will be on the screen. How do we sustain our yes? How do we sustain a life of, of, of service to God and, and service to others? How is that sustained? Of course, you know that I'm talking about a yes that may cost you something. I know how to sustain my yes to ESPN. I know how to sustain my yes to snowboarding. I know how to sustain my yes to cereal at 10 p.m. I know, you know, 
those yeses don't cost me anything, but sustaining a yes that costs me something, sustaining my yes in humble service to God and to others. When you feel like you're giving more than you're getting, how do you stay in a place of giving? Or what do we need to know? And what do we need to have and hold in order to continue to say yes to a life of humble service? And trust me, the church is the least of your concerns. There's all kinds of serve teams and opportunities to get involved here, but how would you sustain your yes in work when you feel like you're not being honored or maybe recognized or um, compensated the way you should be? When you feel like you're giving out more than you're getting back, how do you continue to be wholehearted there? When you feel that way in relationship, how do you continue in relationship? I've been living in this. Um, so as we come to Matthew 20, we're going to fly over the entire chapter. But as we fly over the entire chapter, we're going to put this frame on what we read. How do we sustain a life of humbly serving God and, and others. And I'm going to ask you four questions as we work through the text. The first question is, what do you deserve? What do you deserve? Because how you answer this question won't just determine if you serve. It'll, it'll determine how long you serve. No one sustains a life of serving God and serving others without answering the question, what do you deserve? Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. This is Jesus uh, speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and he sent them into his vineyard. And then at nine in the morning... He went out, hired some other guys standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon, and then three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. At about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So he went to those, so when he, so when those, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I have uh, five daughters back home. My oldest is 17, and my youngest is uh, nine. And I've, I've had to teach the girls a number of things. I've had to teach them some things that I feel like should come pretty naturally to them. <laughs> that just any decent like human being should know. That's just not something you should do. Here is something I've never had to teach my daughters. To, to spot what is unfair. <laughs> I have a Finley and I, I've, I never sat down with Finley and said, Hey, Finley, like what you're looking at here, when you see this situation, you're seeing something that is unfair. And what you want to do when you see something unfair is you want to throw a flag and you want to say that, that is unfair. I've never walked one of my daughters uh, through that. Another thing that's very fascinating to me is I have never told my kids that what I want, what my New Year's resolution is, is to be fair. I've never promised to be that. I've never aspired to that. That's never been my goal. Never once have I said, hey girls, I want to be fair. And when I'm not fair, I want you to tell me when I'm not being fair. <laughs> and so they're like, that's not fair. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't. I never promised to be that. I don't aspire to that. I don't find that interesting, you know? <laughs> you do what I asked you to do, you know? And here's what, I'm, here's what I'm trying to say in saying that, is that we are born with a deep sense of justice because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're born with a deep sense of justice, and we can spot right and wrong and we want what is fair now having said that our cry for justice is is very inconsistent because <laughs> we tend to want mercy for ourselves and justice for others so it's kind of spotty at best but it's there nonetheless you're born with a deep sense of justice and with this story Jesus is trying to help people who think in terms of measured fairness understand his grace. You're born with a deep sense of justice. You're born with a deep sense of fair. But it'll take an entire lifetime to get grace. And Jesus is helping them here with this story. I want to explain for you how to view life through the lens of grace. Because that's not how we normally look at things. We look at things through the lens of a measured fairness. And what you need to know from this story that Jesus tells 
is that your desire for what is fair begins to increase when you work and serve. Has anyone had that crop up? Because our effort should equal something. I do this, then you do this. And a formula forms in me when I start to work and serve. And you, you are grateful. That's why I do this. And then you say, thank you, Travis, for doing this, for making these sacrifices, for serving us so well. Your desire for fair is in there. Trust me, it's in there. But it starts to increase and overwhelm us when we work and serve. And it starts to sound like this. I serve and then therefore I deserve. It, it comes up. It really does. The vineyard in this passage is Israel. The workers who got there earlier are God's people. They've been working and they've been waiting since the start of the day. There's people who probably got here this morning before 7 a.m. They started their shift early. Those getting in late and getting paid the same are the Gentiles and the tax collectors, the sinners. Matthew himself, the guy who wrote this gospel story, started his shift after five. And he got grafted in all the same benefits of salvation that God's people were offered. They haven't worked nearly as long and they were enjoying all the benefits as the workers who got there early. And I think the workers who got there early are rightly what? Upset. Because I served and I deserve. And I think what's interesting, what I've noticed in my own sinful heart at times, is that our desire to have something can quickly become a desire for others not to have. What happens for you when people begin to receive all the same payoffs without putting in the same work? What happens for you when someone at the company is, is fast-tracked and they've not paid their dues? What, what comes up? What, what, what's crop, what crops up in your heart when that happens? Some of you are here and have been in this community for a long time and you've put in a lot of effort in order to make and have relationships. And then there's that one person that waltzes in and in two weeks... They have what it's taken you two years to find here. What comes up in you? What comes up in us when, when people's student debts are, are paid off? Oh, whoa, Trav. <laughs> what, what is it that comes up? I'm not talking right or wrong here. I'm, I'm asking what comes up in your own heart. Hmm. Would you close your eyes for, with me? I believe the Lord would want to ask us this morning the same questions 
that the guy who owns the vineyard asks these workers. I believe the Lord would ask us now, have I been unfair to you? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? God would say to you, haven't I fulfilled my word to you? Haven't I been faithful to my promise in your life? I believe the Lord would want to ask us, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? God would say to us, are you going to tell me what to do? And are you sure you want to do that? I believe the Lord would ask us, are you envious because I'm generous? Do you begrudge my generosity? You can open your eyes. And this is what I've been telling myself as I'm learning to sustain a church and I I'm leading Radiant into another 17 years, Lord willing. I've been, I've been reciting to myself, I never deserve more than to serve. I never deserve more than to humbly serve my God and serve others. I never deserve more than that. I'm never going to outgrow it. No matter how big my church gets or how small my church gets, I'm never shifting. I'm never moving on from a life of serving God and serving others. And the person who has a sustained life of service has moved on from a measured fairness and is living in the grace of God. I never deserve more than to serve. This was mentioned in the testimonies, um, but we're here as Christians, and um, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. But we're here as Christians, and uh, we, we don't agree on much. <laughs> if you're new to the family of God, the family of God can be a little bit maybe like your family, where there can be some disagreements in the family of God. And we don't agree on much, and there's different opinions on different issues and different ways of approaching Scripture, but here's one thing we all agree on. Here's one thing. We all came, we all came together in the council of, like, we'll call it the council of let's not and say we did. You know, I don't know what the council was, but we all came together, we put our hands in the middle, and every Christian agrees on this. Let's not get what we deserve, okay? And everyone's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's not get what we deserve. Everyone in on that at the council of let's not and say we did? Yeah, let's do it. Let's not get we, what we deserve. We all agree. We've all agreed. That would not be a good thing. We don't want that. We want grace, not what's fair, Right? Yeah. Hmm. We want grace for others, not what's fair. We don't want what we've earned. We opted out of that. 
We pass that on. We want, we want the generosity of God in our own lives and we want the generosity of God in others. So we, de we deserve to serve. We deserve to serve God. The second question is, how do you see God? How do you see God? No people group has ever risen above their view of God. Tozer says that. Um, I think probably a, a more... A less fancy way of saying it would be that the God you see is the Christian you'll be. What is your view of God? How do you see him? This is really, really important. Now Jesus was, was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the twelve aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified and on the third day he'll be raised to life. Are you primarily serving God and others or are you aware of the very real ways in which God is serving you? Because in order to continue to say yes to a life of humble service, you will have to be more aware of what God's doing and less aware of what you've done. And if you're going to rehearse all the things that you're doing over and over again. And if you're going to grow out of touch with all the things that God has done, you will not sustain your yes. That's not how this works. The person who's pulling off a life of service is rehearsing what God has done and not continually saying to themselves, this is what I'm doing. So they're saying things like, Jesus, you suffered. Jesus, you paid. Jesus, you carried. Jesus, you initiated. Jesus, you're dying. And Jesus, you're gifting. And Jesus, you're granting. And Jesus, you're working. And Jesus, you're up to something. And Jesus, you're in the yoke with me. And they're continually talking to themselves about what he has done. This is some, this is a, since I'm not at my own church, I can admit this uh, here. Uh, but you know, this is, this is sad. There is a lot of Christian ministry that is fueled by a very low view of God. Because we're working hard down here to bail you out of the mess you got yourself in. And you would never say it. Sometimes, sometimes the thought crops up. I remember I was driving to the airport, not to come here, but it was another trip. And I, this, this thought came into my mind like, hey, we're really doing, we're, I'm, I feel like I'm doing a lot with the little you've given us. Rich Mullins, um, I think he said it, said it best when he said, we're, we're down here working while you're up there playing hard to get. And as a pastor, slowly over time, you start to feel like you're taking calls for someone who's not answering. 
And what happens is your view of God begins to shrink as you serve. And the person who has a sustained yes is aware of all the many things that he's doing in the room right now. And sees themselves as, as following, oh, oh, what are you up to? And I'm along for the ride, not dragging God around. <laughs> You're trying to keep up. You're not begging him to come. Are you in touch with the very real ways that God is serving you. If you're not, you won't serve for long. The third question, how do you define greatness? What's your definition of greatness? How you describe God is of ultimate importance. How you see God is of ultimate importance. But how you define greatness is also significant. Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What do you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they said, well, yeah, we can. And, And they answered. And Jesus said to them, sweet. You will. (laughs) You will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers because they were like, your mom? Why is your mom here? Are you grown men? Do you really think you're the greatest when you send your mom to tell Jesus what to do? And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, you know how they, they lord over them? And their high officials, you know how they exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What do you think it means to be great? What position is that on the field? on the ice what position is that if you want to be great Jesus I think would say great that's great that you want to be great I don't think he would rebuke your desire to be great I think he would rebuke our definition of greatness that's what he would come for he would say Hey, you know those guys who, who lord it over other people? You're in the Lord's army now. And that's really not how we pull rank anymore. It's not really how it stacks up. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we follow Him. And He defines 
greatness for us. And Jesus is saying, no matter how great you become in the kingdom, it'll never mean anything more than serving God and serving others. We don't age out of this. We don't outgrow this. I've been, sometimes over the last 17 years, I've been thinking like, I've got 20 years of marriage, 17 years of being a parent, 17 years of leading the same church. And at times I've thought, I've outgrown this. Like serving. <laughs> I shouldn't have to do this anymore. Shouldn't have to do it anymore with my wife, my kids, my church, the people around me. I've moved on. <laughs> I'm into something else. It's not my Enneagram number to do this anymore. You know, whatever. We never outgrow this. We follow the one who came, not to be served, but to serve. And following him will never mean more than us serving God and serving others. So we'll just settle with it right now. Let's have a council of right now. We're going to serve our entire lives. We're going to serve our entire lives. We're never going to outgrow this. We're never beyond this. Because we're always behind Jesus. How do you define greatness? It's important. Lowliness? Service, lastness, momness. Is that your definition of greatness? How you define greatness will have a huge impact on your sustained yes. And the last question I would want to ask is, um, are you open to interruptions? Because I think people who have a sustained yes and live a life of humble service to God and others are open. They remain open to interruptions. Henry Nouwen, um, he's a famous kind of Christian thinker, wrote about a conversation which helped him to think about interruptions as something other than a bother. And he writes this, while visiting the University of Notre Dame, where I had been a teacher for a few years, I met an older experienced professor who had spent most of his life there and while we strolled over the beautiful campus he said with a certain melancholy in his voice you know my whole life I've been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work and I think sometimes in our tendency and desire to be productive, which is not bad, I think we forget people. I think we forget in the midst of a task why we're doing what we're doing. This happens for me often. It doesn't happen to Jesus. Read on with me. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them, be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus, he stopped and he called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they replied, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight 
and they started to uh, follow him. This is amazing because Jesus just talked to the disciples about power and how, how it should be used, his definition of it. But Jesus doesn't just talk about things. He shows us. And he shows us here how power uh, should be used. Where is Jesus headed, by the way, here? We just talked about it. Do you know what he's setting out for? Oh, he, yeah, he's set his face like flint towards the cross. And not only does he know he's going to the cross, I mean, he knows he's going to be flogged. He's headed to be tortured, and he knows it. How many of you would say he's got some things on his mind? Yeah? Dude's got some things on his mind. He's got a busy week. I know you've got a busy week. You're probably starting to think about it already. Well, at least for sure now you are. <laughs> but like your, your Monday's got some stuff, right? And you've probably got a lot that you need to pull off this week. Well, Jesus has got some things on his mind, right? As he moves towards Jerusalem... He's thinking, well, I've got a big week this week. I'm going to divide B.C. from A.D. <laughs> I don't know what you got going this week, but it's probably not dividing all of human history with, like, by being tortured. It's probably not that. Jesus is, he set his face towards Flint, like Flint towards the cross. He knows what's going to happen. And he's thinking, how will I spend the last week of my life? What will it be like, he, he's wondering, to be forsaken by God? What will it be like, he's thinking, to have the beard pulled from my face? I've seen crucifixion, but I've never felt this. What will my week be like. And here is what's astounding about this text. He stops and takes a call. Who, who is our God? Who is like our God? With everything going on and everything he knows that no one else around him knows, he's marching towards Jerusalem, knows exactly what he's in for, Someone's screaming out, and the whole crowd's like, you don't have to take that call. You don't need to respond to that guy. This is better. You just keep moving. And he stops, and he takes a call. And here's what's amazing about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you have to know Jesus. You have to know this guy. Here's what's crazy, is that he could, he's been healing people for the whole book of Matthew. If you read the book of Matthew, he's just healing people. It's so, there's so many miracles, they start to feel not like miracles, you know? Just like, oh, he did it again. So, so he could have been walking down the road, heard a cry, and just gone, be healed! I got some things to do! You know? He just could have kept moving. But he doesn't do that. He stops, and then he asks, he comes to the guy, and he asks the question, hey, uh, what, what do you want me to do for you? And I think that's incredible. You want to know what question I haven't asked in like 10 years? What do you want me to do for you? 
Want to know why? I'm really uninterested in the answer. <laughs> because I'm busy. I got like things to do. And so I'm very interested in how you coming to me and saying, what can I do to help you, Trav, do what you have to do? I'm glad you asked because I got stuff to do. I'm busy. So I don't come to my wife and say, Tiff, what can I do to serve you? Again, I'm uninterested in the question. I see my church on a Sunday morning. I don't pray it up to people and say, what can I do to serve you? Again, I got stuff to do already. Now, if you want to come my way, that's another thing, but I'm not coming yours. The God of the universe, who is on his way to the cross, stops and he's like, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And so what I'm trying to say here is that in the midst of the task, he doesn't forget why he's doing what he's doing. Broken, hurting, helpless people. He wants them and he's after them. And as he's doing what God has called him to do, he doesn't forget why he's doing what he's doing. And a person who has a sustained yes doesn't forget why they're doing what they're doing. In the midst of the task, they don't ignore what they're really in it for. We get so focused on the task so focused on providing for our families, so focused on planting a church that we can forget, even in ministry, why we are doing what we're doing. People. People meeting the God who would stop and take a call. A God willing to be interrupted. I... Um, I, we've moved a bunch of times. How many people have moved? You've moved a bunch of times. It's the worst. Like, I, <laughs> the stuff I will throw away as we're moving, I mean, I get so sick of moving stuff. I mean, a lot goes into the dump trailer. I'm just like, we don't need it. We can go without it. Really, I'm just tired of moving. We've done it a lot as a family, and my wife has to constantly peek into the giveaway pile or into the dump trailer because she's like, I, "You can't be trusted." You know how people, you know how people get like hangry. I get like mangry, like moving angry. And those like last few loads, you know, I'm just like forcing stuff in. You know, it could be like our finest piece of furniture, and I'm just like. I'm just done, done with all this stuff. I'm ticked that we're moving again. And what, what's the point of unpacking these boxes? Because I may next summer move them anyway. So they can just stay there. And as long as I have a toothbrush, we'll be okay. So I'm in one of these moves. I'm in one of these moods because we're in one of these moves. And we're moving from a house we've been for a little bit of time. And my wife says to me, oh, we got to have the Colburns over. We gotta have the Colburns over. We gotta have them over because they've been incredible neighbors to us. And I'm saying to Tiff, I don't, I don't have any time for that. Uh, more importantly, I'm in a really bad mood about this move in general, and I don't want to have, I don't have a meal. I don't want to have a dinner with the the Colburns. And Tiff, Tiff persists. We have to thank the Colburns. They've been the most amazing neighbors. They are. The Colburns were the most amazing neighbors we've ever had. Part of that was that 
rather than go to Lowe's or Home Depot, he had a killer set of tools <laughs> and an open door policy for me. So, so finally, Tiff talks me into it and we have a dinner with the Colburns because we're about to move and we want to thank them for the way they've been neighbors to us. And so I get our uh, girls together who are young at the time and we write a song to thank the, the Colburns, right? And it was like, to the best neighbors we've had, to the best neighbors we've had, moving away is a little bit sad when you've had the neighbors we've had. And the song had verses about how they had a pellet ice machine and he, he would always get invited on these fishing trips and he would come back with like halibut, but no one in their family ate fish. So the fish would come to my house. Anyway, the best. If I kept talking, you'd be like, wow, those are amazing neighbors. They were. So I get this little kid guitar out and, and we're singing. And I, I look at the Colburns and I'm like, to the best neighbors we've had. And it, it starts to visit on me, like what this is really all about. And it's not about homes and houses and school districts. And it's about neighbors. <laughs> and it's about these people. And I love these people. And I'm so mixed up in like trying to replace the trim so that we can close escrow. You forget like what a house is really about. And so I'm now crying to the best neighbors we've had. To the best neighbors we've had. Then everyone else starts crying. And their, their littlest girl screams out, Then why are you moving? <laughs> and you get so zeroed in on the, the task or the house or, or uh, what's best that, you know, sometimes you just forget why we're doing what we're doing. People. There's been a lot of moves for Trinity over the last 14 years. What's made this meaningful are people. People meeting the God who would stop to take a call. What kind of God is this? That he would hear us. That he would be with us. That he would be interested in what's going on in our lives. What in the world? I mean, really. It's great that we've planted a church. Again, that's just not the point. People, helpless, hurting people meeting the God who would stoop down and ask questions. <laughs> it's a joy to serve him.